This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming Chris Nossel to the stage. Come on up. Thanks for the tech support overall. Um, hi. Every traveler is an ambassador. Uh, and since I'm the first American on stage today, let me first say I'm sorry and we're working on it. <laughs> I'm here today to talk to you about something I kind of made up. Um, and my hope is in this first part to get you to see something new. And that's not an easy thing. Wish me luck. This device is a camera. Specifically, it's a digital single lens reflex camera. It's the camera that I personally own, the Canon EO5. And because we all walk around with really good cameras in our pockets, uh, and it looks like a pretty young audience, I'm going to describe how you use this. <laughs> to, get a camera, to get a picture, you pull out the camera. There's a little switch in the top to turn it on. If you're smart and not jet lagged, you pull off the lens cap. You hold the object to your eye, look through the viewfinder, and there's a heads-up display that gives you some information about the photograph that you're about to take. Then when you have the shot framed, you depress a little button about halfway, um, making sure that the autofocus kicks in, and then you can press the button, take a picture, look at the CCD screen on the very, I mean the LCD screen in the back of the camera, see if it's the photo you wanted, and if it is, great. If not, you put the camera back up to your eye and start the process all over. That's how you use this object to take a photograph. This object is called the Google Clips. It's not very popular, and in fact, I looked this morning, and it's not for sale on their site, <laughs> so it may not even be doing well. But I'm going to describe to you how this object makes photos. You leave it plugged in overnight, and once you unplug it, as long as it sees light through that lens, it's taking pictures and taking video. But it doesn't store them. What it does is it looks for, well, good framing, good lighting, uh, ex good expressions. And over time, it learns the people that you are sort of in your orbit. And it, uh, it favors those faces. And it saves those photos to its little local drive. And at the end of the day, it shares them with you and says, hey, what do you want to do with these? And you can say, ooh, that one's fun. I want to save that one. Just get rid of the rest. Or save that, share that one to social media. Now, the difference between these two things is really important. Even though they are both ostensibly cameras, the thing on the left is a tool for you to take photos, and the thing on the right is an object that gets you photos. That's pretty interesting. This is a vacuum cleaner. I hear some laughter, so I think you know where I'm going with this. This is a tool for you to clean your floor. In order to do that, you go fetch it from a closet, pull it out, undo the power cable, plug that power cable in, step on one switch to release the handle, step on another to start the engine, and then you push it around your floor until you're satisfied that it is clean. You know what's coming. This is also ostensibly a vacuum. But the way this works is you tell it what time you want it to go, then you go to work or you come to a conference. And at the time you specified, the Roomba will leave its cradle and go around your room. And it has a cool algorithm that optimizes uh, for 
almost any arbitrary shaped space and vacuums your floors for you. Mine is named Rusty and it only really bothers me if it gets stuck or needs me to empty its dustbin. Ostensibly, they're both vacuums, but one is a tool for you to vacuum and the other is an object that gets you clean floors. That's pretty interesting. This is a car. It's the most popular car in the world. It is a tool for you to drive yourself from point A to point B. This is an object that gets you from point A to point B without having to do too much work. That is interesting. Now I first started to see the connection between these products and services when I was doing a ton of user research uh, at a small consultancy that I worked at and I was having to do a lot of travel and I felt bad for my cats <laughs> and I had bought an automatic feeder and an automatic litter box and I was feeling a bit of anxiety every time I was about to leave going, are you really gonna eat? Is that really gonna clean? And furthermore, a client had come to the consultancy and asked me for help in designing a robo-investor. If you're not familiar with what a robo-investor is, it's a piece of software that you describe to it your financial goals. You tell it, say, I want to retire at this time. Uh, I hope to buy a house sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, my kids are going to hit college in 12, so I'm going to need an extra bump, bump, bump of cash then. Then you give it some seed money. You promise to give it a little bit of money each month. And from that point forward, it manages a portfolio of stocks and helps you achieve those financial goals. It does automatic rebalancing every single day. If one of the stocks that you have selected is tanking, it'll alert you and say, I think we ought to get rid of this. Or if there's one that's taking off and says, hey, we're not really taking advantage of that opportunity and we ought to, it'll alert you and let you opt into that. But as I was thinking about that robo-investor, I was like, oh, this is so weird. It does its work outside of our attention. I have some ideas on how to design this, but how do you usability test a thing that is working when you're gone? And I thought of the cat feeder. Because when I would leave, I didn't feel confident that it was going to feed my cat when I got back home. Or, or if I got back home, had the cat been fed at all? It wouldn't tell me. And then I thought about the Roomba. Oh, how would you usability test that thing? It's doing its work when I'm at my job. And I recognized that all these things were of a, of a piece. And the distinguishing factor for these all are that we grant them agency to act on our behalf. That's pretty cool. So I thought I should go out and do my due diligence as a designer. It's obviously a, a new pattern that I'm encountering. I'll go see who wrote a book on that and I'll study it. Nobody had written a book on that. So I was like, wow, somebody should really write a book on that. So I wrote a book on that. Uh, and I wanted to give this kind of technology a name to distinguish it from other types of technology in that space. And I recognized that, well, if we grant it agency, what is the adjective form of agent? And I went to a dictionary and looked it up. Turns out that that's a forgotten English word called agentive. So I'm going to call this agentive technology. Now, when I first showed this to a bunch of college students of very nascent ideas, they were like, that's cool, but those are all first world problems and who gives a shit? Who cares if you have to pull out your camera 
who cares if you have to f vacuum your own floors, you lazy bastard? And I thought, OK, fair enough. That's a fine critique. So I went out into the world and I tried to find non-first world examples. In the upper left-hand corner, you'll see a service called ShotSpotter. It's very embarrassing to me to have to say that we need this in America because of our horrible gun problem. But what this service does is it sprinkles microphones around gun-prone neighborhoods. And each of the microphones is trained to listen for gunfire. When it hears that gunfire, it reports that sound and its own location to a central server, which then triangulates to within a meter accuracy of where the gun was fired. How it's implemented depends on the precinct that it's in, but for the most integrated precincts, it can actually identify the police officers that are not currently tasked that are closest, reducing the response time from you know, 45 minutes to four. That's an agent that listens for gunfire and helps the police uh, forestall our embarrassing and deadly gun problem. That's not a first world problem. In the upper right hand corner, you'll see KiteString, which is an agent that you can use when you're going on a date. And it works like this. You tell KiteString a time, then you go on your date. Then at the appointed time, it simply sends you a text and it says, hey, you okay? And you can do one of two things. One, you can give it a safe word that you've established in advance. And if you give it the safe word, it's like, all right, you're cool. And it just deletes all the information off of the server. If you don't respond within a certain amount of time, it will send a message that you have given it to a number that you have given it. And ostensibly, the message is something like, hey, I've gone on a date. Here's the address. I'm not really responding to this service right now. Could you check on me? Smartly. They've even thought of, well, what if you're kidnapped or have a really nosy creeper on the other side of the table? Um, and if they're looking at your screen and they say, oh, give it your safe word, you can provide a fake safe word, and it will still deliver the message to the person. So it's not a replacement for you know, care, being careful or screening your people as well as you can, but it's a nice backup chaperone. That's a kite string. In the lower left hand, corner, you'll see something that looks like a Roomba because it was designed by people who used to be at Roomba. It's called the Turtle, and it's like a Roomba for a garden. If you look closely, you'll see a green thorn that's sticking out underneath the edge, uh, and that thorn spins around and helps uh, weed. And it helps a farmer or gardener manage much more uh, land than they would before. In the lower right-hand corner, you'll see a drone called the Scarecrow. This drone is programmed to hover above endangered herds and watch for approaching humans. If it recognizes the humans, notably if those humans are park rangers, it doesn't do anything. But if it doesn't recognize those humans or recognize them as poachers, the drone flies down in between the human and the herd and the wasp-like noise of the drone scares the herd in a safe direction. In full disclosure, I made that up. But the way I made that up was the important thing. I took a look at the patterns that I had observed in the other agent of systems and applied it to a problem that I cared about. I don't mean to be flippant about that. Uh, when I was presenting in Delft last year, the same content, one of the students said, oh, that's pretty cool. You know we're making that, right? So I'm going to make a shout out to the AV drone, which is being made by students who have graduated from Delft University. And one of its primary use cases is that scarecrow scenario. So, just some quick examples to show you that we're talking about safety, we're talking about food, 
we're talking about the Anthropocene, not first world problems. Agentive technology is as big as you can think. It's not a panacea, it doesn't work for everything, but it works for much more than I think it initially appears when I present these ideas. Now, if you're a skeptic, and I really hope there are a ton of you in the audience, you may be thinking, well, how is this different from automation? And that is a fine question. The main difference from automation is that it is an engineering goal to minimize human interaction. If a human has to get involved with an automated system, the system is failing. Agent of tech, hopefully as you've seen in the examples that I've provided, is all about its humans and gives me an opportunity for lots of stock photos. So, hopefully at this point, I have convinced you that agent of tech is a distinct pattern in the world. Now what I'd like to do is to convince you that it's an interesting pattern and that you should pay a great deal of attention to it. And I have five reasons that I'm gonna share with you. The first is that it's new. It's a new thing for you to learn and put into practice. Now, if you look closely and you're a reading sort of person, you'll see that there are air quotes around the word new. And the reason that I have those air quotes is because of the image that's in the very back of the slide. Can anyone identify that? I think I heard autopilot. And that's what that is, that's a piece of autopilot. And anyone wanna take a guess at when the first autopilot was demonstrated at a World's Fair? You know it's gonna be much longer than, than uh, you think. 1914, the autopilot is over 100 years old, and of course when it was initially released, it was a bunch of electronics um, and what we would come to call cybernetics in the 1950s, um, and it's a great example of agent of technologies. But it's kind of an exception. Of the three dozen examples that I have and go through in the book that I wrote, uh, nearly 90% of them are all launched within the past 10 years. And that's because nowadays, you don't need millions of dollars and work hours dedicated to solving a particular agent of problem. People walk around with supercomputers in their pockets. They're connected to a global network. And there are APIs of artificial intelligence that you can tap into in order to create a proof of concept demo for an agent inside of a couple of days. And that's new. So when I say agent of tech is new, it's kind of not new, but it is new. Our opportunity to design for it quickly and at scale is new and interesting. The second reason it's interesting is it's different. If you studied interaction design formally, uh, like I did at grad school, one of the canon canonical models that we would talk about is a hammer. If you were to talk about the design of a hammer, you would rightly talk about its affordances. How does a, a, a hammerer, a carpenter, know what this object is for? Well, there's a wooden handle, it looks like it fits a hand, there's a hard part with a flat edge and a claw. You would talk about its constraints, you would talk about feedback. But none of that makes sense when we're talking about an agent. If it's doing its work away from you, what's the affordances for a Roomba? What's the feedback mechanism, right? A better model than the hammer for an agent is a butler. Now, I don't have a butler, but I've seen them on, in the movies. And the way I understand they work is that they know your goals, they know your preferences, and they only bother you when you ask something of them or when there's a problem, or they're completing a task for you. 
That's a better model for thinking about an agent than a hammer. And in fact, I often talk in like workshops, like the workshop that I ran yesterday on this topic, um, that what we're doing is we are giving users a promotion from being task doers, in the case of the carpenter, to task managers, in the case of a butler. Now, that's a metaphorical explanation, and I want to give you something a little more concrete. This is a model called the see, think, do loop. I hope it's familiar, but just in case it's not, I'm going to describe it for you. The red part is the human part. Anytime a human is interacting with a system, they observe that system. C is what we use for that section of the circle, but in fact, it could be any kind of perception. It could be here, it could be smell. But you perceive some state in the system. Then you think, well, that's not right. What do I need to do to change the state of the system? You formulate a plan, and then you execute that plan. I'm gonna click that blue button, and maybe it will do what I want it to do. That's called the do. So the see, think, do loop has a computer counterpart, and it's on the bottom. And because it's computers, we have different words for it. We call it input, process, and output. But between those two, we have a loop that describes every step in an interaction, as long as it's a tool that you are designing. It, it gets a little bit different when you're talking about an agent. Within, and remember, if the red part is the human and the blue part is the computer, it changes when you get to an agent, right? Where the human is mostly involved in the beginning and the end. Oh, look, well, that's blurry. Ah, well, I guess you'll just have to buy the book to see the full diagram. I'm kidding, that would be a super jerky thing to do. What kind of an asshole would do that? Okay, uh, here's the actual diagram. Um, but you'll see that the uh, red part, the humans are mostly involved in the setup of agents and the disengagement of an agent to say, I need you to stop working. And then uh, they sort of ride the outside, but there's still a, uh, another computer system that is helping doing all the seeing and thinking and doing. And that's a, a lot different between the manual and agentive models. Um, I see a lot of cameras going up. That, Super flattering. This is my most photographed slide, so I'm going to just give you the URL where you can go to get a full-sized image of this diagram. And what you see on the outside of this diagram is a whole bunch of uh, use cases that I have identified as unique and germane to agentive technologies that aren't germane to other types of interaction design. That's interesting. That's new. Third reason. Agent of Tech represents a Shangri-La of user-centeredness. Oftentimes in grad school, we would talk about the difference between the amount of work that we're asking of a user and the amount of value that they get from using the system. And of course, we're trying to minimize the amount of work and maximize the amount of value. And when we're talking about an agent that does the work, the ratio is nearly zero, which makes whatever this value is to nearly infinite. That's a pretty good trade-off. I'll take that trade. So, if you're here in this business in order to provide value to people, well, I can't think of a better one than sort of the agentive model. In 1990, a couple of authors by the name of Pine and Gilmore published a book called The Experience Economy. And in that book, they identified that there's different categories of product that differ according to how much work you do and how much of a premium you're willing to pay for that. Their example was a cup of coffee, so I'm gonna be using the exact same one. If you wanted a cup of coffee and you were dealing with 
a commodity, the way that you would go and purchase that cup of coffee is you would have to drive out or take a bus out to a big warehouse with a huge bag, announce your intentions to get some coffee. You would probably have a minimum size of a barrel. They would shove beans into that barrel, and then you would have to haul that back to your house, store it. When you wanted a cup of coffee, grind those beans yourself, brew the coffee, and then have that coffee. And that's a lot of work to be doing, but because you're doing so much work, you're going to pay pennies for that cup of coffee. Compare that to a product where some enterprising person said, oh, hey, don't worry about coming to our warehouse. What we're going to do is we're going to grind those beans for you. We're going to put it in a package that's well-designed and distribute it out to a store near you so that all you have to do is go to the store, pick it off the shelf, take it home, and drop it into a coffee machine. You're doing a lot less work for a product compared to a commodity, and for that, you will pay a premium. Again, some enterprising person at one point said, you know what, don't even worry about the product in the store. You come into our establishment, when you order a cup of coffee, we'll go in the back, we'll grind the cup, we'll brew, the, we'll brew it, we'll bring it out to you, and we'll even clean it for you. That's called a service, and again, you're doing less work, and because of that, you're willing to pay a premium. Now, Pine and Gilmore were identifying these products a category partially to answer why, how the hell did Starbucks convince us that $5 was fair for a cup of coffee? And their answer was that Starbucks was providing an experience. You go into one of the ubiquitous stores and there's beautiful wood paneling and lovely lights and hip music and an abuse of the Italian language, <laughs> and you have a cup of coffee, and for that you're willing to pay a premium compared to the service. I raise this model in the context of an agentive discussion because I want you to notice something about even the four steps on their pyramid, which is that every single category of product requires your attention to extract value. And we don't have a lot of attention. Between sleeping and having a full-time job and tending to your loved ones and having a hobby and taking care of your health, the amount of attention that you have to dedicate to a product or a service is really small, and that's a very competitive space. But my Roomba? Rusty? Rusty doesn't take much of my attention at all. And that's a big playing field. It's a huge opportunity space for companies that choose to enter into it. I call it post-attention value, and if you just search for that term, you can see an article that I wrote on it. Number four, P.W. Singer coined a term called threshold technologies. He was writing about that in a very dark context of war, but I'm going to abstract that term to talk about agents. A threshold technology is one that once a consumer or a culture adopts it, that they are loath to go back to the old way of doing things, right? And it's super first-worldly to admit, but now that I've got Rusty, I find the prospect of going and grabbing my vacuum before a dinner party to be really tedious. And in fact, like I've, I, I don't even think about it. Like food on the burners, uh, food may burn on the stove as I'm doing that. And for the companies that adopt in sort of an agentive mode for their products, uh, it introduces sort of a first mover advantages where your customers, your users, are kind of loath to go back to your competitors because you're providing that post-attention value. And that's really interesting. And the last reason is it's AI. Now, um, we talk a lot about AI on stages nowadays. And I want to be clear that I'm not talking about general artificial intelligence. I am a super nerd about sci-fi. And I've got a blog for you if you're interested in it. 
but I'm not here today to talk to you about that. I'm here to talk to you about the AI that's in the real world and that are all talked a little bit about in his talk, right? Full disclosure, I work for the aforementioned IBM. <laughs> Super awkward, right? <laughs> but fortunately, I've only been working for them for the past three years. Uh, I wasn't around in the 30s. Um, and so the AI that I'm going to show you is IBM's Watson. <laughs> Super awkward. Uh, but the AI, the APIs that you can take advantage of with Watson um, are the things that you can be using and that you'll need to use in order to have a product that can do, go and do something on behalf of a user, right? It needs to be able to sense the world. It needs to be able to have smart processing uh, in order to meet your goals and to meet your preferences and even to execute those commands in the see, think, do loop. They include, you know, everything like... Alchemy Data News, Discovery Trade-Off Analytics, those stuff that I sort of work with on a daily basis. Um, but even if you work with something like TensorFlow, it's true. You need to get used to AI in order to build agent of products for your customers. Okay, so in the first part of the talk, I tried to convince you that agent of tech was a distinct kind of technology. And in the second part of the talk, I tried to tell you that, hey, it's really interesting and you should get to know it. In the third part of the talk, and sort of the last talk, part of the talk, I'm gonna tell you that I've been a little too simple in describing it. I use very easy to understand examples, like the Roomba, like the self-driving car, because they're easy to understand. It's easy to see the difference in this and other kinds of technology, but that's an oversimplistic example, right? When we take a look at what agentive tech really is, it's actually a mode of use. Think for a moment about a circle that represents sort of all the things that an AI can do. Now think of a circle that represents all the things that a human can do. We would call the things that a human can do, man, or the, the things that, that it uses, the human uses to do the work, manual tools. And we would rightly call anything that the AI does as automatic. It's where we combine those two and find the overlap where it's really interesting. Most people, when they combine the notion of AI and human tools, jump right to assistance. Oh, I'm going to be doing something, and the AI is going to help me do that thing. That is a fine question to ask, but agent of technology kind of throws a bit of a wrench into it. It helps distinguish between when we are helping the AI, in the case of agent of tech, or the AI is helping us, in the case of assistant tech, right? And while I often talk about products that only have one, or only live in sort of one of these zones, like the vacuum cleaner is a manual tool, you can't really pull the handle off and kick it on its way to be an agent, and similarly, the, the Roomba doesn't have a handle that you can go stick onto it and push it around a floor. So it kind of only lives in the agentive category of this diagram. But sophisticated, mature tools tend to exist across these modes. My favorite example is text input because it's, again, so familiar. You can just sit there and tap with your thumbs. It's a tool. It's a tool for you to input text. But it also has some assistant capabilities. 
right? It'll say, hey, I think I know the ending to this phrase you're typing. Does this look right? And if so, you can swipe right and accept. And depending on where your attention is, it also acts as an agent. If you misspell something and it's super confident that you've misspelled it, it'll just uh, correct that for you and act as an agent. All right, that's an example of a single small piece of technology that exists across those modes. And it's my assertion that once I have convinced you that agentive is distinct, you now have to manage that mode within this spectrum of interactive modes with an AI. So it's not as simple as I first, first represented it, but I'm trying to be good and pedagogical. Okay, so. That's the last thing I really wanted to assert to you about agentive tech, is that I speak about it as products, but really it's a mode of use. And while we're talking about text entry, I'm gonna use that to really talk about sort of the, the last thing that I wanna spend my time on stage today with you about. And that's that there's a pattern in the world where UX just absorbs AI. So I'm speaking about agentive tech as if it's speculative, but it's gonna be in your wheelhouse very soon. The example I want to use is spell check. I don't know if you're around in 1988 and using computers, but at that time, spelling apps were their own pieces of software. The way it would work is you would use a word processor to enter into a bunch of text, and then if you thought, I think I'm done typing this in, I'm now going to check the spelling, you would close the word processor and open up a spelling piece of software and let it chug along and uh, identify things that you might have misspelled and offer suggestions. It only took one year before WordPerfect 6.1, I think, incorporated spelling directly into the software, and it was a revelation. You still had to invoke it. Ah, now I want to go into the spelling mode. It would still interrupt your work. And hopefully that seems hopelessly outdated today because spelling is now just an agent that lives in the OS, checks your spelling, and, and what once was a giant company is now just a squiggly red line. You would be hard pressed, or, or I hope you'd be flabbergasted if a company came out and sort of talked about spelling as a big feature that it was offering to you in a new product or service. You'd think that's, that's table stakes. Artificial intelligence is somewhere between word perfect 6.1 and the squiggly red line. We're still talking about it as if it's a thing, a, a market differentiator. And we're gonna have to. Our users are getting used to it, our salespeople are getting used to it. We're still maturing these concepts and these technologies. But I think eventually we will absorb it and what we think of today as this really special new feature is just going to be a squiggly red line in our interfaces. And that's good, that gives us a little bit of time to master like new processes, to master the, the new resources that we have at our disposal, and even to master new models. But if we do, we're going to be making this team the best team that it can possibly be. Thank you. <laughs>